Welcome to Navigating Consciousness. I'm Rupert Sheldrake, and this is a podcast of my talks and conversations. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcatcher. It really helps. Now, my theme this evening is Finding God Again, The Rise of Anatheism. Now, most of you probably don't know what anatheism means. I didn't know myself until a few months ago. Um, it's a word that's been put into circulation by an Irish philosopher called Richard Kearney. And what it means is back to theism. We all know what theism means, belief in God. Atheism means disbelief in God. And anatheism means returning to or going back to a belief in God after being an atheist. Now, this is, I think, an important modern movement that's taking place at the moment. Um, it's a surprise that we're even discussing this. When I was growing up, when I was at school and at university, most intellectuals and educated people assumed that religion would just wither away, that churches would get emptier and emptier until there were just a few old ladies and then they'd all close and that would be the end of it, that science and reason would triumph, progress would surge humanity forwards, uh, and religion would fade away as a superstition, a relic of the past. That was the standard view. I believed it myself um, during my atheist phase. Um, but that isn't what's happened. Um, there's been a remarkable resurgence of religion, sometimes in frightening and possibly and, and sometimes toxic forms, like the religious right in America, the rise of creationism and so forth, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism and fundamentalist-inspired terrorist groups. All this is scary. But there's also been a, a much healthier and, um, and less noticed increase in interest in religion. For example, here in Britain uh, at A-level, um, the religious studies A-level has been increasing in its enrollment by about 5% a year over more than 10 years now. Um, it's one of the sort of best-kept secrets of the A-level world that this is becoming an increasingly popular subject among young people. Um, and precisely because religion hasn't gone away, as, as atheists used to assume it would, uh, there's been this remarkable atheist revival movement. Um, in about seven or eight years ago, there was a sudden surge of uh, atheist books, um, Sam Harris, The End of Faith, Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, uh, Daniel Dennett, the American atheist philosopher, Breaking the Spell, and Christopher Hitchens, the polemicist, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. All these people were calling for the uh, extermination of religion, if possible, but at least it's being denied any level of respectability. And Richard Dawkins has been stomping in the United States, leading vast sort of revivalist meetings, atheist revivalism. Proselytizing atheism has been uh, on the increase in the last few years, precisely because these atheists are worried uh, that religion is on its way back and they feel they have to counteract it. Um, 
One of the things that has been going on in in the academic and intellectual world is an attempt to explain religion. It was ignored before. It was assumed it would just fade away, as I said. But there's now an attempt to explain it. Why are so many people religious, even when science textbooks are full of materialist theories that uh, would render religion unnecessary, superfluous, and, and so on? Why does it persist? Well, atheist theoreticians have come to the conclusion that it must be hardwired into our genes and brains. That's why it persists. And it's got hardwired in uh, through natural selection and evolution. Um, There's a variety of theories on the market. One of them is due to Daniel Dennett, who argues that uh, it must be hardwired into our genes. There must be a gene for religion. uh, Because in primitive societies, People who are credulous uh, will believe the mumbo-jumbo of shamans and witch doctors. And because they believe the mumbo-jumbo, they'll get a bigger placebo effect. So they'll get better from their illnesses through uh, just belief uh, that there's something in this. And therefore, they'll survive better. And therefore, people with the credulity gene uh, will survive more than those who haven't got it. So the frequency of the credulity gene will increase in the population. Uh, leading to modern human beings being hardwired, many of them, uh, with this credulity gene. Well, there's no evidence whatever that there is such a thing as a credulity gene. Um, But um, this is the kind of speculation uh, which is going on in the world of evolutionary psychology at the moment. Now, um, there's also been a very interesting move in recent, the last two or three years, of atheists trying to reinvent religion. Um, Not only hasn't it gone away, but uh, some atheists have come to the conclusion that it's necessary even for them. Um, This is most clearly set forth in a book, a very interesting book, by Alain de Botton, who's a philosopher, and many of you will have heard of him. Uh, a book that came out a couple of years ago called Religion for Atheists. Alain de Botton starts the book by saying he was raised atheist. His father was a Jewish banker and, uh, and, and was a militant atheist. And his father and mother, uh, whenever they met anyone who showed the slightest interest in religion, uh, he said, treated that person as if they had a terminal degenerative disease and never took them seriously again on any subject. Uh, that's how he was raised. So he said, I was brought up that way. I've never questioned atheism. I accept atheism. But he said, I'm not interested in fighting against religions. I take all that for granted. I'm interested in atheism 2.0. What do you do when you just take it for granted? Where do you go? And he then, in his book, his fascinating series of chapters where he looks at the things that religions do for people that atheists don't get because they don't have any religious practice. One thing religions do is give people a chance to meet together, to sing together, to celebrate together, to celebrate festivals. So he's trying to institute atheist love feasts and atheist festivals. Um, And um, other people following him have set up Sunday assemblies, atheist churches on Sundays, where they can sing together and and share elevating thoughts. Um, He said that Um, with the demise of going to church or synagogue or uh, uh, religious practice for many people, that means they no longer hear sermons. And it's interesting to see how he gives great value to sermons. He said, sermons are talks about telling you how to lead your life better. 
And in the secular world, no one tells you how to lead your life better. You just get lectures that impart information. Um, so he's instituted uh, Sunday sermons in London for atheists. They take place in Conway Hall at the same time as church services. The difference is that with the church service you get singing as well and liturgy, but here you just get a sermon. Um, he also pointed out that in, a modern, in the modern world there's no models of uh, uh, teaching about the virtues and vices. He went, he describes going to uh, a church in Italy where on one side there were pictures representing the seven deadly sins and on the other side the seven virtues, the four uh, classical virtues and the three Christian virtues. And he said that in a traditional religious society there were, you were told what was bad and what was good and there was a model for virtue. He said in the modern world uh, the public space is supposed to be secular so there's no models of virtue and they're not meant to have any models of any of this. But, as he pointed out, as soon as you enter a public space, there's every incitement to the deadly sins in the form of advertising, lust, greed, envy, uh, sloth, gluttony. I mean, they're all there. Adverts are encouraging us to those all the time. But where are the models of virtue? They're not there. And so, anyway, this, this, it's, it's a very interesting book because it shows a thoughtful approach to the present situation that we're in. And the fact that there seems to be a need for many of the things that religion has traditionally uh, provided. I'm just going to say a few words about my own journey um, uh, before I go on to some more general considerations. I myself came from a Methodist family and um, a family of church organists. My grandfather and my uncle were organists, and I learned the organ as a child. I play the organ uh, to this day. Um, but I went to a high church Anglican boarding school, so I got a pretty conventional religious upbringing. Um, but by the time I was about 14, I was very keen on science, and my science teachers at school used to have private chats with me, explaining to me why science and religion simply didn't go together. Religion was a thing of the past, uh, it's been superseded by science and reason, and as a budding scientist, they, it, it would be just a sign of intellectual weakness to show any interest in religion. Religion was for the feeble-minded, a consolation for those who can't face the harsh realities of a brutal world uh, where there's just forces of natural selection, there's a purposeless universe, our minds are nothing but our brains, when we die that's it. But those who are too soft to accept these truths need the consolations of religion, but as a budding scientist I needed to go beyond all that. Well, I found that very persuasive and rather flattering because it meant that by accepting this view, I was in the vanguard of humanity, of science and reason pressing ahead, leaving behind all this superstition. I was the only boy in my year who refused to get confirmed at school. And I became a fairly ardent uh, atheist at school and then when I got to Cambridge as an undergraduate. Um, I joined the Cambridge Humanist Society because um, I wanted to learn more about this. I didn't go to many meetings, they were actually terribly dull. Um, the, the most interesting one was when Sir Julian Huxley gave a talk, he was president of the British Humanist Association, um, about the improvement of humanity, how we should take the evolution of humanity into our hands. 
and the best way to ensure an improved human race through science and reason was to have make sure that uh, the very best and brightest uh, men became the parents of a new generation. And he outlined the ideal qualities of a sperm donor. Uh, that sperm donor should uh, come from a distinguished scientific dynasty, should have achieved prominence in public life, uh, been uh, recognized for this prominence by knighthood or something of that kind. Um, and uh, so and after he'd gone on with this list of things, you realized that, I'm sure everyone in the room realized that the perfect sperm donor would be none other than Sir Julian himself. <laughs> um, and interestingly, um, I'm friendly with his son, Francis, who's now over 90. And I visited Francis a couple of years ago, and he told me that he'd received uh, a letter from, well, several letters from people who said they had reason to believe they might be related to him. Would he give a DNA swab so they could have a test to see whether uh, they were, in fact, uh, children of Sir Julian Huxley. This program was put into practice. <laughs> Francis refused to give a swap. He said the last thing he wanted in his 90s was to have all his half-brothers and sisters uh, created by his father's eugenic reading program. Um, um, so, anyway, that was the most exciting of British Humanist Association meetings, but even that failed to inspire me. Um, so, um, I continued with this atheist faith as a scientist. It's just taken for granted. I mean, I, I heard people say to me often, you know, uh, anyone who's religious and worst of all Christian is it's just a sign of feeble-mindedness. No scientist can embrace that kind of nonsense. It was just a standard cultural assumption of the world of science in Cambridge when I was there, and still very much today uh, among many scientists there. Um, I was shocked out of this when, uh, in 1968, um, I got a scholarship from the Royal Society to go and study rainforest plants in Malaysia. And they gave me a ticket, and it was one of those old-style airline tickets that you could change and, and stop off on the way. Um, so I thought, okay, I'll stop off in India. Um, so I stopped off in India. I didn't know anyone there. I thought it would just be a few days. And in fact, I knew one person in India. He was a friend of mine from Cambridge, an anthropologist doing field work in the Himalayas. And I just ran into him in Delhi by chance. And he said to me, um, I'm going back to my village in the Himalayas tomorrow. Do you want to come? So I said, well, yes. So, so I changed the ticket again. And uh, we took a train and then a bus. And then we had to walk four hours beyond the, the bus, the road head, um, through tracks into this very remote village, no electricity, no TV. There was no TV in India then anyway. Um, and he was living with a Brahmin herbal doctor. And so I was living in a simple Indian household. And I was really impressed by the people I met. They, they, they had the sacred fire, they, they did their chanting and their mantras. And rather than seeing this as just contemptible mumbo-jumbo, I found it really inspiring. And I found their faith and the fact that with, in such poverty, the people there seemed to be happy um, and seemed to have a philosophical and wise kind of attitude to life impressed me. One day we went for a walk, and as we were walking along the stream up in the Himalayas, the, the other side of the stream was this cave, and there was this man in orange robes sitting there. And I said, who's that? He said, oh, he's the local holy man. 
he lives in the cave. I said, well, can we visit him? He said, yes. So we went to visit him. He invited us in. And he then said, he pulled out a clay pipe thing and started puffing on it. Then he offered it to me. I didn't know what it was. And my friend said, you know, have a go. Um, he made an invocation first to Lord Shiva. So I puffed on this thing. And it was cannabis. I've not had cannabis before. And um, it, I, it was extraordinarily powerful cannabis. And it had a very, very noticeable effect. Um, I stepped out of the cave onto a kind of Himalayan meadow with white peaked mountains around me. And I felt completely transported in an incredible sense of the presence of a kind of mystical experience. It was an incredibly strong uh, effect that really changed me. I'd never had anything like that before. I changed my ticket again and spent the next two months traveling through India. Um, um, where I went to Benares and, and stuff. I found a way of doing it. I had no money, but I found a way of doing it by giving a talk. I just got a PhD at Cambridge. And, um, I gave a talk at the botany department of one university in Delhi, and then the professor wrote to professors all the way through India. So I was put up at the universities and gave talks in the botany departments and um, got to see the great temple cities of India, Benares, Madurai, um, I went to Madras, and uh, had a, a marvellous journey through India, and I was very inspired by these temples and the holy men I met. And, and then I went to Sri Lanka, and I visited a monastery and talked to a, a Buddhist monk there who made tremendous sense to me uh, about meditation. And this really changed, uh, changed me. And then I spent a year living in Malaysia, where I knew Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus. Um, and far from finding these people stupid and feeble-minded, I found them funny, great to be with, uh, well-balanced, intelligent. Um, and it gave me a very different view. When I got back to Cambridge after this oriental adventure, um, I, took, uh, I discovered psychedelics. So that, that was the next stage. And that was, took me way beyond anything in my education at Cambridge and brain physiology had prepared me for. Um, um, so uh, the mind was so much greater and so much more interesting than anything anyone had told me about. I just learned about nerve impulses and serotonin and acetylcholine and things. But nothing in anything I'd learned prepared me for these visionary experiences. But I wanted to find ways of exploring the mind without drugs. And so at that stage, there was a big craze for transcendental meditations in the early 70s. So I took up transcendental meditation and yoga, and it was pitched in a very skillful way, the transcendental meditation. They said, you just do it. You, it changes the way you are. It changes your attitude to life. You don't have to believe anything. It could just be sort of short-circuiting parts of the brain. It could also all be just inside the head. You don't have to buy into any belief system. That, I found that very persuasive, and so I did that. And I was a don in Cambridge at this stage. Um, then I got to the point where I felt it's nice being at Cambridge. It's too nice being at Cambridge. And if I stay here, I could see all along the line the stages I'd go through. There were people there, like warnings of you know what it's like to be a don at 35, at 40, 45, etc. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that. So I left, and I got a job in India uh, in an agricultural research institute. Um, I was the principal plant physiologist at IPSOM, the International Crop Research Institute for the Seminary Tropics in Hyderabad. Um, so I persisted with the um, meditation and the yoga, 
And they started visiting temples and ashrams and discourses by gurus. I was very fascinated by all that. I visited miracle-working gurus like Sai Baba. Um, and I also went through a Sufi phase. I had a Sufi teacher in Hyderabad who was uh, quite splendid, a man called Aga Hassan Hyderi. He, and he wore marvelous shivanis with brocade and he had perfume. The Sufis all wore perfume in Hyderabad and ran their fingers through plates of jasmine blossom. Uh, one thing I learned from them was that it was not ascetic. It took the pleasures of, the, of, of life seriously. They saw them as God-given pleasures, not something to be rejected, but something to be enjoyed. So that's one of the things I learned from the Sufis. But um, with all this going on, uh, I began to find that um, I was actually didn't really want to become a Hindu or a Sufi. To become a Sufi and then didn't want to become a Muslim, and that I thought was going a step too far. I didn't really want to buy into the whole Islam. Um, and being a Hindu, I was very attracted to all these things. I realized that there was a lot in this that didn't fit my nature. The main goal of um, Hindu spirituality is to undergo a kind of vertical takeoff. Um, the assumption is that this is a hopeless world that we live in, that there's endless cycles of rebirth and reincarnation. Uh, most people in the West who like the idea of reincarnation think it's a good thing. Hindus think it's a bad thing. You don't want to be reincarnated. You want to get off this life altogether, uh, because reincarnation just means trouble, more trouble. Um, and uh, they also have a view of history that we're in Kali Yuga, we're in the last stage of a degenerative process of the universe when everything is going to get worse and worse. Uh, it will, uh, Kali Yuga is characterized by disharmony between people and nature, disharmony between men and women, breakups of families, uh, dis disorder within the world. In fact, it sounds very like the modern world. Uh, so if you see it from the glasses half empty, uh, point of view uh, of Kali Yuga is pretty plausible. Um, but I didn't find that I, the vertical takeoff spirituality, the idea you just had to look after yourself, and, and if the poor are poor, it's because of their past lives, it's their karma, not your business. Um, I was working in an institute trying to improve the lot of poor farmers. Um, and I realized that this impulse to work with others, that the spiritual life or one's goals in life should be to help others, was actually part of my Christian heritage. So I found myself quite unexpectedly and surprisingly drawn back to a Christian path. I was confirmed in the Church of South India at the age of 33. And um, I, I found that very helpful to be rooted in my own tradition. But it still seemed to lack this mystical dimension that was so well-developed in Hinduism. And at that stage, I met a remarkable British Benedictine monk, Father B. Griffiths, who lived in a small Christian ashram in South India. I went to visit him, and it was quite wonderful. He was, wore orange robes, he had a long white beard, he was very wise, he was really holy, he was incredibly smart, he was funny. Uh, um, it, was, it was a wonderful place, and it was also much more Indian than any of the Hindu ashrams. When I went to the Sai Baba ashram, there were about a thousand guests, about 900 of them at the time, were sort of Italian spiritual tourists who came by the busload. And most of the Hindu ashrams were inundated with spiritual seekers from Europe. 
Um, but a Christian ashram in India, there were no spiritual seekers from Europe, or hardly any. Uh, so it was much smaller, much more Indian. Um, and um, so at this stage, I was still working at my institute, but I, I was working on the idea of morphic resonance. I wanted to write my, a book. And Father Bede said, OK, if you want to write a book, come and live here as long as you like. So I went and lived there for a couple of years, where I wrote my first book, A New Science of Life about morphic resonance and memory and nature. Um, Father Bede uh, showed how it's possible to embrace the, the, deeper, the deepest aspects of Hindu thought um, and still uh, and bring them together in a kind of, uh, not exactly syncretism, but in a way that they could coexist and be part of uh, a, a Christian uh, spiritual life. For example, the Mass at the ashram began with the Gayatri Mantra, which is one of the central mantras of the Indian tradition. Um, I said to Father Bede on my first visit there, um, how can you possibly have a Hindu mantra in a Catholic ashram? And he said, because it's a Catholic ashram. He said, Catholic means universal. If it excludes anything that could be a path to God, then it's just sectarian. And so he had this extraordinarily integrative approach, which I found immensely attractive. And he introduced me to the Western mystical tradition, to the great mystics like Meister Eckhart, and um, a long tradition I didn't know about. So that, for me, was an immensely helpful experience. He was my main teacher. When I came back to England after that, I then saw things with completely new eyes. Um, I started going to church on a regular basis. Then I found, as many of you know, that all our cathedrals... Exeter, Salisbury, Durham, Lincoln, uh, Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's, have every day the most beautiful sung services, Choral Evensong. I started going to Choral Evensong cathedrals. Sacred places resonating to the most beautiful chant, uh, wonderful prayers, lovely language, Elizabethan language of the Book of Common Prayer. And I started going to churches where I found wherever I was, I could go to a church and be in a quiet place where I could meditate. So when I go to a new town or city, I try and go to the church, or if it's a, a Hindu town, I go to the temple. I go to the local sacred place and to connect with the sacred place. When I'm here at Schumacher College, um, I always go to Dartington Parish Church as soon as I can, light a candle there and, and pray there because. It's, the churches provide this place of calm and a space uh, where people have prayed for centuries or, or at least decades. Um, so um, I then discovered that um, also by making it a practice of going to church on Sundays, which I do wherever I am, um, I found that as I hope to do here on Sunday at Dartington Parish Church, 11.15, um, the um, that there's a local community of people giving thanks to God in sacred places, uh, in long tradition. It's very rooting. I like singing and, and singing with people. It's a wonderful thing to do. And if I don't go and just read The, the Observer or something, uh, it's, it seems that a whole aspect of life's just been missed out. I find it inspiring and helpful. And I don't find uh, people in churches, at least the Church of England, dogmatic. 
um, people, the standard view I had as an undergraduate was, you know, religion's dogma, whereas science is about free thought and inquiry. My experience is the exact reverse. Um, within religious institutions, I can say what I like, and I have many friends who are priests, Matthew Fox, I've done books with him, I'm doing a series of workshops with the Bishop of California, the, of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. Um, I find these are some of the most free-thinking, wide-ranging minds I know. Uh, whereas the minute I enter a scientific institution, a chemistry department, a biochemistry department, molecular biology, psychology, etc., it's uh, the shutters of thinking come down. You can't have a free conversation in a scientific institution. You can talk freely to some people within it after working hours, after a couple of glasses of wine. Most people are much more open uh, outside their lab than they are within it. Um, but um, the, the, I find that the, the dogmatism of science is, uh, is extremely impressive. The theme of my most recent book, The Science Division, is precisely the dogmas that are constricting science and uh, holding back the sciences. I show how when you turn the dogmas into questions and look at them scientifically, the sciences can be liberated and regenerated. It's a very pro-science book, not anti-science, but I think science has got trapped in this materialist dogma which is a serious impediment. Now, when I was thinking about these kinds of things, um, I came to see that the main difference between an atheist and a religious worldview is really about the nature of consciousness. Atheists, most of them are scientific materialists. Um, all the atheists I know are, are scientific materialists. It's not that they don't believe anything that they have a very strong belief in scientific materialism, the doctrine that the basic reality is matter, consciousness is nothing but the activity of the brain, evolution is purposeless, uh, there are no purposes in nature, uh, matter is unconscious, and so on. These are the dogmas of materialism. However, most scientific materialists believe that the universe is governed by mathematical laws of nature. There are laws of nature, invisible, intangible laws of nature that work everywhere at all times and in all places. That is a hangover, actually, from the Platonic theology of the 17th century, which the founders of modern science believed in. They saw the laws of nature as ideas in the mind of God. Uh, modern atheists got rid of God, but they're left with the ghost of the god of the world machine and these laws of nature which are outside space and time, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, etc. They have all the properties of God um, because they were derived from theology in the 17th century, uh, a platonic theology. So they believe in these laws of nature that were all there at the moment of the Big Bang. Um, they believe in universal energy, energy that permeates the whole universe, that can undertake many forms. They have these cosmic principles. But the key difference between them and, and religious people is that they think the whole universe is unconscious. That all of nature, the, all the stars, the galaxies, the whole cosmos, the universe, are utterly unconscious. The only conscious things in this entire universe, which has evolved for no reason, for no purpose, the only conscious things, as far as we know, are our brains. And maybe dogs, cats, and other animals, uh, and for liberal materialists, maybe you know, they extend consciousness as far as worms or something. But um, uh, this, we're the only conscious beings. They have no explanation as to why we should be conscious. This is called the hard problem in the philosophy of mind, 
consciousness shouldn't exist even in us if all nature is unconscious, but it does. So this is kind of exception. But the rest of the universe is unconscious. Now, all spiritual and religious traditions take the view that we live in a conscious universe. There's consciousness in nature, through nature, and beyond nature. That there's, we live, our minds are conscious, but they're just smaller kinds of consciousness within much larger kinds of consciousness. The ultimate source of consciousness in the universe is the divine consciousness. Um, and that our minds can understand nature because nature is shaped by the mind of God, which uh, includes the principles of reason, ratio, proportion, harmony. That's why we can understand nature through science or through reason, because our reason and the reason underlying nature have a common source. So, thinking about these things, I got interested in theology, and when I started reading books on theology, it was a complete revelation to me that Theology was a closed book to me, entirely closed book. Uh, you can't, I mean, it would be a complete waste of time to read theology if you're an atheist. It's just make-believe speculations about nothing. Um, but I discovered that theology is actually one of the most interesting branches of theology in the modern world. There are some really interesting theologians writing at the moment. Much, much more interesting than anyone in academic philosophy departments in universities where most of them are still trying to disprove uh, that consciousness, they're trying to prove consciousness doesn't exist, and different philosophers of mind, that one say, lot says it's an illusion, another lot says it's an epiphenomenon. Uh, they argue among themselves, trying to analyze the meaning of words and to get rid of the idea of mind as having any existence over and above chemistry and physics. Now, that's not very interesting. Um, whereas in theology, there's been a, a a set of very deep thinkers. My favorite theologian at the moment is an American, he's Greek Orthodox, called David Bentley Hart, H-A-R-T. He wrote a book recently called The Experience of God Being Consciousness Bliss. And what he does there is takes the idea of um, the Christian idea of the Holy Trinity as, the, as an understanding of the nature of God and shows how closely parallel this is to understandings in Sufi uh, thought and in Hindu and in other traditions, that there's far more in common between different traditions, ideas about God, than there is that separates them. And that's one of the interesting things about anatheism, this return to God. It's returning to an understanding of God after the purifying fires of atheism, which strip off a lot of the um, uh, superstitions and unnecessary uh, accompaniments of religion. Uh, in the modern world, it, you can't do it with tunnel vision. You're only in one tradition, a Calvinist or Catholic or something, because we now have access to all the world's spiritual traditions, Tibetan Buddhist, Theravada Buddhist, Hindu, many different schools, uh, Sufi, etc., etc., shamanic. Um, so uh, his book is, is written in this context. And he has a really interesting way of dealing with the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, which is the teaching about the nature of God. Basically, um, I think it's the best understanding of God there is. Um, and it takes these Hindu forms and, and Christian forms and so on. It has different forms. But in the Christian tradition, one of the primary metaphors is of speaking. This is one of the metaphors. All these views of God are metaphoric, um, explicitly so, in the Greek church. 
Uh, the idea is that we can't say what God is, we can only say what God isn't. If God exists, by definition, our minds are much smaller than the mind of God and therefore hardly capable of grasping it. Um, but the, me- well, the metaphors of speaking, of words and of breath, when I'm speaking now, my words are carried by the breath as I breathe out. The words are carried on the breath. The words have form, pattern, structure, meaning, connections. Um, the breath is a flow of energy. But if I have just the breath, there's no meaning. If I have just the words without the breath, they're silent in my mind. You can't hear them, they're not expressed. For them to be expressed in the world, you have to have both the words, the form, the pattern, the structure, and the breath, which is the flow of energy. In the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, there's a grounded being, the Father, uh, then there's the Son, which is the Logos, the Word, the pattern, the structure, the principle of form or order in the universe. That's a little bit that's influenced by Platonic thought. But that alone is not enough, because that would be static and uh, non-evolving and simply silent in some transcendental realm. To have things come into manifestation it has to be the flow of energy, which is the spirit. The spirit means flow of energy, wind, breath, fire. All the images of the spirit are images of flow, of change. Whenever you think about these things, you come to this kind of conclusion. Stephen Hawking, who is, of course, an atheist, in his book, uh, A Brief History of Time, uh, comes up with these equations, his theory of everything that he was searching for, and some of you may have seen this really good film on Stephen Hawking, The Theory of Everything, um, just came out. Um, he said, if you come up with the ultimate equations for the universe, which has been his life's dream to come up with the theory of everything, an equation that explains all reality, he admits at the end of the book that an equation alone wouldn't do the trick. He says in a, one of his more deeper passages, what is it that breathes fire into the equations? What breathes fire into the equations? The equations alone won't give you a universe. There has to be flow, energy, change. It's interesting that the view of nature that we have through modern science is that matter is not the fundamental principle. Materialism has been transcended by physics because the fundamental principles of nature are fields and energy. Fields give form, structure, pattern, order, gravitational field, morphogenetic fields shape developing organisms, Magnetic and electromagnetic fields shape so many things. All radio, TV depend on electromagnetic fields and mobile phones. Um, We have fields, but the fields alone uh, won't give you it. It's the fields with the energy that flows through them. Electron is a vibration in an electron field, an energetic vibration. So we have a principle of form, a principle of change or movement, energy and fields. And in the Logos and the Spirit are basically the aspects of this in, in the divine being. The point about the theology of the Holy Trinity is you can't have an image of God as an undifferentiated unity that gives rise to a diversified world. You have to have principles of change if God is an organism and gives rise to a world of organisms. Another metaphor uh, that St. Augustine developed for the Holy Trinity is God, the Father, is the knower, the Son is the known, and the Holy Spirit is the joy or bliss of knowing. And in Kashmiri Shaivism, we have a very similar uh, explanation of ultimate reality, the knower, the known, and the means of knowledge. 
as being the basic explanatory trinity for the whole universe and of the human mind and of the divine mind. Well, obviously, these are speculative theories. Um, these are not things that have to be believed in one metaphor or another. The official Roman Catholic doctrine of the Holy Trinity is that it's a mystery and not, no, no one of these formulae is enough to encompass it. But there's speculative thoughts about it, uh, the nature of the ultimate divine. And I, the, my favorite ancient theologian at the moment is St. Anselm, who was Archbishop of Canterbury around 1090. Um, and he had a theology of the Trinity, which is really fascinating. He says that uh, the, the divine mind contains that God is that which nothing greater can be imagined. So he's dealing with the question, can God smell roses? And he says, yes, because a God who didn't have the experience of the smell of a rose uh, would be less than a God uh, who did have it. And so all qualities, all experiences, all colours are part of the divine mind. It's not just a sort of set of mathematical formulae, it's a set of all possible experiences. The divine mind contains all possibilities and all possible experiences. Um, he goes on uh, about other aspects of uh, the divine mind in the most fascinating way. Well, Interestingly, there's a movement within the sciences at the moment away from materialism. Um, materialism is inadequate as a theory, at least of human minds. And within consciousness studies and philosophy of mind, there's been a move in the last few years, accelerating in intensity, towards the philosophy of panpsychism, which is the idea of this, uh, this mind or some kind of mind or psyche even in electrons and atoms, in the sun, in the stars, in galaxies, in Gaia, the Earth. Um, the course on which I'm teaching at the moment in Schumacher College is called Mind and Nature. And until recently, Schumacher College is one of the very few places where you could discuss this. This is now becoming mainstream. Panpsychism, um, the, the top American philosopher of mind, Thomas Nagel, came out in favor of panpsychism a couple of years ago. Uh, one of the most hard-nosed neuroscientists, Christoph Koch, came out in favor of panpsychism six months ago in the Scientific American. There's now a kind of stampede towards panpsychism because old-style materialism is becoming less and less credible. Um, it's, it's falling apart in, in almost every respect, as I show in my book, The Science Delusion. So panpsychism is now increasingly mainstream. It's mainstream in Dartington, um, and, uh, and as usual, Dartington leads the way. Uh, it's catching on elsewhere as well. So that means we have a universe in which there can be stars might be conscious, the galaxy as a whole might have a mind, it might think, it might have intentions, plans, purposes. Our minds are within the mind of the sun, within the mind of the galaxy and within the mind of the entire cosmos, from a panpsychic point of view. Well, this is not a strange thought in theological traditions. In the Middle Ages, they had a panpsychist philosophy of nature. Nature was alive, the earth was mother earth, animals and plants had souls, that's why they're called animals, it means beings with souls. Um, in the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas, it was a panpsychist world we lived in. 
And God the, was the God of a living world. God was the God of a living world. It wasn't that God was the God of a machine world that was totally devoid of meaning. Hence, psychism and theology are perfectly compatible and always have been. You can have panpsychism without theology. You could have a more pantheistic view. Um, but you can have it with theology as well. The theology that I like most is a school of thought called panentheism, uh, which is God in nature and nature in God. Um, there's also a school of theology called process theology, um, which is based on the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead, uh, which is about the evolutionary nature of God, God in an evolutionary world. Traditional theology didn't have evolution. Modern theology does. Well, these are rather abstract ideas, and um, they're not to anyone's taste. I happen to like this kind of thing. I think about these things, and I find them helpful in my scientific work as well. Um, because the nature of the mind, in our ordinary minds, is one of the ultimate mysteries, and um, it's not going to be explained just in terms of nerve impulses. We have to have a way of understanding the bigger picture. But a return to the spiritual is going on in all sorts of ways, and I thought I'd just mention one practical way in which this is happening, which is through pilgrimage. Pilgrimage was banished in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, here in England, King Henry VIII sent the army to stop people going on pilgrimage to Canterbury. Uh, the shrine of the Black Madonna of Walsingham in Norfolk was destroyed, pillaged at the Reformation. The image of the Black Madonna was burned in a public bonfire. The suppression of pilgrimage in England uh, stopped people going on these sacred journeys, which are found in every culture, Native Americans, Australian Aborigines. You know, in the Catholic world, of course, they still exist, Santiago de Compostela being the best known. Uh, Muslims go to Mecca. Um, pilgrimage is a deep human urge. It's part of human nature. It's, I think, part of our migratory nature. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors had to move from place to place in such pastures and food and had annual cycles of movement. Um, many animals had migration patterns. Um, so I think pilgrimage has deep biological roots. It's deep in our nature. But when it was suppressed in England and in other Protestant countries, um, it, the urge didn't go away. Uh, within uh, a century or two, the British had invented secularised pilgrimage, which had been rebranded as tourism. And tourists, of course, still go to great sacred places. They go to the cathedrals, the pyramids, Stonehenge, etc. But when they get there, they have to pretend they're Enlightenment intellectuals who are basically interested in art history. They're not really interested in art history at all, most of them. But they get pamphlets with facts and figures that they don't bother assimilating. Um, because they're meant to pretend they're above getting down on their knees and saying prayer or lighting a candle. Uh, they've risen above all that. They're Enlightenment intellectuals. That's what most educated people are supposed to be. Um, but this actually leads to an impoverished experience. And there's been a revival of pilgrimage in many forms. The Church of England restored pilgrimages to Walsingham in, in the 20th century. There's a big revival within the Protestant churches. And there's been a revival of people going on traditional pilgrimages like Santiago de Compostela. Many people who go on that are not Roman Catholics, but um, they really appreciate the sacred journey, the journey to a goal or a destination. 
And I mention this because a recent initiative has just been started here in Britain in the form of the British Pilgrimage Trust. One of the people who runs it is my colleague, Dr. Guy Hayward, who's with us this evening, who's been doing this experiment. Um, and Guy and uh, his friend, um, Ed, have been uh, walking, um, Will or Ed? Will, Will sorry. Um, Ed's the other one in their team. Um, have been walking across ancient routes from Pilgrim, from Winchester to Canterbury over the North Downs and then over the South Downs, and singing songs as they go. Guy's a great singer. He was a choral scholar at Trinity College, Cambridge, and so is his friend, Will. Um, and they've, they found when they go and sing these songs in, at, at old churches and by sacred springs, people get curious. They get invited to go for dinner with people. Uh, they, they go and uh, they've been sleeping in some of these churches. And of course, pilgrimage uh, is something that Satish Kumar has been emphasizing here in Dartington for a very long time. Um, and he's, in a sense, pioneered a kind of non-denominational pilgrimage here in Britain. But Guy and Will uh, and, and the British Pilgrimage Trust, of which I happen to be the patron, um, is now trying to restore uh, many of our ancient pilgrimages here in Britain. And it really works. Um, recently, a few months ago in the summer, um, I had uh, the problem of what to do for my 14-year-old godson's birthday present. And this 14-year-old, very sophisticated godson who, who's being brought up in a very sophisticated way. Um, and I was thinking what to give him for his 14th birthday. And I, I didn't want to give him stuff. I don't give stuff to children or grown-ups anymore. I try to give experiences. Most people have got too much stuff. So I, for my great nephews and nieces, I put money into their experience fund every year, which they can use for horse riding lessons, football matches, or whatever. Um, Anyway, I thought it was an experience, and the guy had just done one of his pilgrimages, so that gave me the idea. So I said to him, my godson, um, for your birthday present, I offer you a pilgrimage to Canterbury. So it was a day when you take the train from St Pancras, we go to a small village about seven miles from Canterbury, get off at that station, walk seven, the last seven miles of the pilgrimage route through orchards, fields, woods, Bigbury Hill, where Julius Caesar fought his first battle in Britain. And then past a sacred spring, back Black Prince's Well, down into Canterbury. And um, I didn't know whether he'd accept this or not as a present, but he loved the idea. And we did this pilgrimage. It was the most wonderful day. We had a pilgrim picnic on Bigbury Hill. We got into Canterbury. He was beginning to flag by then. I assumed that 14 year olds could walk eight or 10 miles with no problem, but I, uh, he wasn't used to walking that far. Um, anyway, when we'd been revived by tea, um, we went to call even song, we went and lit candles and said prayers in the cathedral. It was the most wonderful day. And um, so I know that this can be a, a completely different way of experiencing a walk in the countryside. I love going for walks anyway, but this gives this other dimension. Now, in terms of the core of what lies behind all religious traditions, all religions are man-made in the sense that um, they, they're shaped by human culture, human language, human words, human history, human traditions. Um, but what lies at the core of them all is a sense of direct conscious connection with the source of consciousness in the universe. And 
Um, this could be called mystical experience, and it can come in many ways. Some people uh, reach it through spontaneous experiences in nature, some people through prayer and meditation, some people through psychedelics, um, uh, some people through taking part in liturgies and services. There's many ways in which people uh, reach this. One of the interesting things that's emerged in, in, in the last few decades is the discovery that this is actually very common. Many people have mystical experiences, but in our society they don't talk about them because they're afraid of being thought weird, schizophrenic, or something like that. The Oxford zoologist, Sir Alistair Hardy, um, started at something called the Religious Experience Research Unit in Oxford. Um, and what he did there was to treat this as a natural phenomenon. What in, if you're a naturalist, you look into the natural history. He did surveys of mystical experience in Britain and found many, many people had had them, including many children. And uh, they classified them, they did a kind of taxonomy of mystical experiences. Now, I don't know how common they are here, but I'd like to do a little poll of you, if you don't mind. Um, and the definition would be, uh, he used the definition of being a sense of presence greater than themselves, a kind of conscious presence greater than themselves. It could be through being in nature and feeling a sense of part of something greater than yourself. It could be through a near-death experience. It could be through a psychedelic experience. Um, now, people are shy about this, so I'm going to ask you first to close your eyes now, and then, if you've had such an experience, to raise your hands. Well, thank you. I think I can reveal it's about 95%. Uh, now, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I think these things are far more common. It may be that people who live in or near Totnes are going to be more prone to this than a random sample of the population. Um, but um, this, this is very, very interesting because I think this is what all religions come from, the sense of a connection, a consciousness greater than our own. And there could be many levels of consciousness greater than our own. The Earth, the, the Sun, the solar system, the galaxy, the galactic cluster, the whole universe, the, the solar field of the whole universe, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the ultimate consciousness of God, which may permeate all these. Now, all religions put this into their own language and their own form through their own tradition, but they all start from experiences of this connection. In the Jewish prophets and Jesus, the uh, Muhammad with his inspirational experiences, um, the Hindu gurus and their lineages of gurus, the Buddha and his enlightenment. This is how religions start, through these experiences. Then they're interpreted in human language, they're turned into more regular, uh, routinized forms of practice. Um, but although religions have their faults and, and they're all uh, man-made or human interpretations of these experiences, personally, I still think they're very helpful. There are many people today who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. In America, it's now something like 30% of the population. Um, and I imagine there are plenty of people here who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. I would describe myself as spiritual and religious. It's not either or. There may be people who are religious and not spiritual, and many people are spiritual and not religious, but it's perfectly possible to be both. And personally, I think that being both is, is, um, is better because 
Spiritual but not religious means it's very much an individual quest for most people. Um, you, you have these experiences, it's a private practice, um, but the religious uh, um, dimension makes this part of a communal activity where you can share it with other people. It links it into the tradition, it links it into sacred places, it links it into festivals and, and pilgrimages. Um, and in these areas, we need all the help we can get. And I think that uh, these traditions can really help. Sometimes they can be toxic, sometimes they can be damaging to people. But, and I think that was much more so in the past than it is today. Uh, the great majority of children today are brought up with no religion whatever. They don't have religion thrust down their throats. Uh, uh, they know nothing about their own tradition or any other tradition, usually apart from the smattering of things they've been told at school. Um, so my own view is that if one's spiritual and, and is looking for a religious path, it's better to go with one's own roots, in my case, the Christian. I don't seek to persuade people who are Hindus or Jews or Muslims or Buddhists to become Christian. I think it's much better that they remain Jews or Muslims or Buddhists or whatever. And for some people, it's necessary to go to other traditions to learn from them. And I've learned a great deal myself from the Hindu tradition, the Sufi tradition, and the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. My wife is a practitioner of Zogchen Buddhism, so I hear it. I know a lot about that through her, and I go on retreats with her. So I think we can learn from these traditions, but it makes most sense to me if we're rooted in my own. And so I think that's something that... Uh, one of the thoughts I'd like to leave with you is, is, is that just if this isn't something you already do, to consider that possibility. And nowadays, for those who come from Christian backgrounds, it's got much easier because churches have moved with the times, and um, it's not usually based on dogma or trying to make you feel guilty. Or I've never heard a sermon on hellfire or fear of hellfire in anywhere in the Church of England, despite going to church every Sunday for years. Um, here in Totnes, for example, at St. John's Church on Sunday between 4 and 6, they have a labyrinth, the Chartres Labyrinth, surrounded by candles, and it's called Sacred Space. You don't have to be a Christian to do it, anyone can do it. And what it is is an exploration of a sacred journey in sacred space by candlelight. Because Tuesday, Monday, is Candle Mass. It's one of the great festivals, the cross-border days. We, the great festivals of the year, the solstices and equinoxes, or close to them. And then the ones in between are called cross-border days in the ancient pre-Christian calendar. Candlemas, February 2nd, May Day. Um, um, then um, Lammas in August, August the 2nd. And then Halloween, All Saints, All Souls, um, November the 1st and the 2nd. It's this cycle of festivals through the year. And Candlemas is one, a festival of light with candles. In Totnes, you can walk the labyrinth in a sacred place um, by candlelight for free. So there's a great wealth offered to us um, that there are many offerings free and open to all. And I feel that it's um, worth at least considering um, taking up what's offered to us so freely and so generously. And I think really there's plenty wrong with all religions, there's plenty wrong with all national customs and all human institutions, but I think in this case what one has to do, in most cases, is to try and find the best in them, and then it's obviously going to be more helpful and uplifting than looking for the worst. 
Well, those are the thoughts I wanted to leave you with. And um, um, now, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. <laughs>